and welcome to the Proskauer Benefits Brief, Legal Insights on Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation. I'm Rob Projanski, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Jenny Richterich. Thanks for joining us today, Jenny. Hi, Rob. I'm glad to be here. So today we're going to follow up on our Episode 6, Cybersecurity and Employee Benefit Plans, and talk a little bit about cyber theft in 401k plans. This involves a situation where a person comes in for a distribution or gets a benefit statement and learns that their account has already been distributed. Jenny, how does this come up? So this comes up in a lot of different ways, and we'll talk a little bit about a recent example. Generally, the situation you're describing is one where some a hacker has the participant's credentials and is able to use those to access the participant's plan account. Are there other ways you've seen it come up where somebody gets the credentials? Absolutely. People are very susceptible to phishing, which is where you'll receive an email with a bad link that will harvest your password and other confidential information. There's also malware or spyware that also is used to access people's confidential information online. So using these tools, hackers are able to gain access to participants' 401k accounts, and they are also able to authenticate any requests because they will have typically gained access to their social security numbers and other authenticating information. So this even comes up where you give out your password voluntarily, right? Correct, and that's a really tough example because oftentimes spouses will share passwords, then the spouse becomes an ex-spouse, still has the password, and decides to take a distribution from the ex-spouse's account. This, in fact, was the subject of a published case on this issue. Jenny, when this happens and a participant's credentials are somehow disclosed, either intentionally or unintentionally, how do you analyze who's at fault there? Is it the participant that ultimately is going to be responsible, or is the plan fiduciary or even the record keeper somehow going to wind up on the hook in these sorts of cases? So Rob, that's a great question. I think my first answer would be probably not, but then I'm gonna back up from that and say it depends. And the reason I say it depends is that in the situations that we were just discussing, the plan and the record keeper followed all of their internal security protocols. So the reason I bring that up is that if good procedures were in place and they were followed, it's likely that the record keeper and the plan are not gonna have any liability. So Jenny, you mentioned good procedures and I wanna touch on that for a minute before we circle back for responsibility. How does the fiduciary know that the plan procedures are actually adequate in a way that's gonna help avoid liability. So Rob, great point. I think typically in these situations, if we're reviewing the procedures after a breach has happened, that's probably gonna be too late. The ideal time to really engage on this issue is during the RFP process, when you can have a very robust discussion about what the industry standards are and what's available to ensure participant account security. So if the procedures are developed through a prudent process during an RFP and you're able to ask for what you need during that process, later on when you're evaluating whether the procedures were followed, you at least have a baseline of having adequate procedures in place. When you're doing that, do you find that 
record keepers are sometimes reluctant to give that information to the plan fiduciary about their procedures for fear that it will create a vulnerability? Absolutely. So that is very often cited as the reason why you can't get access to the exact nuts and bolts of their cybersecurity procedures. And one thing that we've suggested in the past is to have the plan fiduciaries internal IT people have almost an offline discussion with the Rutger Keepers internal security personnel to give you assurance that you fully comprehend and are satisfied with what the security protocols are. Of course, that presupposes your confidence in your own IT people, but that's the recommended procedure. So Jenny, let's circle back to other ways where we can help limit a plan's liability to a participant in these circumstances. Are there other ways to do that aside from just making sure the procedures are in place? Yes, Rob. So I think a pretty straightforward way is to add language to the SPD, making it very clear to participants that their password and PIN, which they use to access their account online, is equivalent to their signature. So making it very clear to participants that they need to keep that information safe or someone else can use it to take a distribution, withdrawal, or loan from their account makes it much easier in retrospect when a participant claims that he or she didn't know that their password was sufficient to take a distribution from their account. And there's a published decision on this issue which cites the existence of this language in the SPD very favorably as making it extra clear to the participant that they had an obligation to keep their password secure. Jenny, sometimes companies want to make the participant whole even when they don't have to. Mm -hmm. So you take a case where a participant had $50,000 stolen and that may not be a lot of money to the company, but it sure is a lot of money to that participant. And they choose to make the participant whole. What kind of things should a company be thinking about when they're considering that? So Rob, that's a good question. We've seen this happen maybe in a couple different scenarios and I can understand different motivations. Sometimes there's a reputational concern on behalf of the company that perhaps their line of business is one where cybersecurity is very important. And even though they were not at fault at all, the idea is we don't want any negative publicity. There's also a risk if a participant is unhappy that they'll be making a lot of noise about this being a bad record keeper. But I think the most important thing to consider is that if you make one participant whole for $50,000, you want to be very careful that you're not setting the precedent to make several dozen participants whole for amounts in the millions of dollars. That's one thing to consider. I mean, also, there's the practical aspects of making a participant whole, which is whether you're going to do it inside or outside the plan. So just so I'm clear, this inside or outside the plan concept is the idea that if you do it inside the plan, number one, you're going to want to treat similar participants similarly. But number two, there is a question that you have to answer about how you're going to characterize that payment, right? Is it a restorative payment based on a real life fiduciary breach or not? Because if there isn't risk of fiduciary breach, it's hard to call that a restorative payment. But outside the plan, you have a lot fewer restrictions which is the good news, the bad news is, how do you treat the taxability of that payment because it really is no longer a payment from the plan? Completely agree. You'd also need to consider any potential FICA issues related to paying it outside the plan. Well, thanks, Jenny. This has been a very helpful discussion. And thank you for joining us on the Proskauer Benefits Brief. Stay tuned for more legal insights on employee benefits and executive compensation. 
And be sure to follow us on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify.